John 20, the empty tomb. Early on, the first day after the, of the week, okay, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the tomb had been removed from the entrance. The, that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Guys, quarantine. I've totally forgotten how to read words in quarantine. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' head had been, one one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she, and she told them that, that he had said these things to her. Jesus appears to his disciples. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and 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 sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus appears to Thomas. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks on his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The purpose of John's gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alex. Hey, pray with me, everybody. God, it's incredible today to be remembering this event, your resurrection, Jesus' resurrection from the grave. 
that Jesus is Lord even over death, God. Um, that is such a profound thing that I think in some ways I have far too often taken as just a note in the song and not, not the, the meaning of all of it, God. God, I pray that um, today as we walk through John's narrative, John's account of, of the resurrection day of Easter Sunday, God, that you would open our eyes to something new today, that you would appeal to us and change us, that this would be a transformative experience, that, um, that what we hear are not just words, Lord, but that we would fall more in love with, with you and your great plan for us, your creation. Pray these things, Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, everybody. Well, um, when I asked Alex to read John 20, he said the whole thing. And I realized, like, I'm just, I'm used to giving big chunks of scripture out. Uh, and there's, there's a reason for that. There's a reason I do this. Um, far too often we read, we read the Bible in tiny little bite-sized pieces, and we lose a sense of the whole. We lose a sense of what is really being said by the author. You wouldn't read a novel. You wouldn't read any other book in the way we read the Bible. And so for me, it's a challenge to always say, no, I'm going to read a full chapter right? If I read my kids a bedtime story, I'm going to read them a full chapter. I'm not just going to quote three lines. And so today I wanted to walk us through John 20, a classic uh, resurrection account. And I want us to look at this from a few different angles. I think John intentionally wrote this story and he, he, he states his intent right at the end, right? The purpose statement is at the very end. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, what we just heard, and many others in the book of John, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These things are written so that we could believe the unbelievable. So, it might seem crazy to say that, but think about the situation we're, right in, we're in right now. Things are unbelievable, you guys, until they happen. It is unbelievable that all of us would be in our homes unwilling to and unable to go out and be with other people. If you had told me three months ago that this would be happening at Easter, I would have said, that's crazy talk. Things are unbelievable until they happen. It was unbelievable to everyone around Jesus that he would rise from the dead until it happened. We have to put ourselves in that place. We have to understand that when we're listening to this story, we're listening to three different people. John's account of three different people who encounter Jesus. And it's kind of like, think of it like a, um, a science experiment where you have, you have reactions, right? You have like an element and you're, you're putting two things together. I think of my kids with like baking soda and vinegar, right? But in a good, in a good science experiment, you always have a constant. You have something that you're, that you're keeping the same and then you're changing the variables. And they're helping you learn about all of the elements, right? Especially the constant. You're testing the constant. You're seeing what reacts to the constant, right? And so in this story, we have a constant. In the whole of the Bible, we have a constant. And that constant is God. God is unchanging. Thank God. Jesus is unchanging. 
the only human who is who is truly constant, who is the truth and the life, who is light. And so as Mary, as John and Peter and the disciples, and as Thomas interact with Jesus, each of them with their own personalities, with their own baggage, with their own histories, come up and they experience the unbelievable. And they struggle and grasp with how to believe it. How do we live in the unbelievable? And like us today, they have just experienced not just, we might look at this and go, well, this is unbelievably great. But for the characters in John 20, when we start at verse 1, they have just experienced an unbelievable disaster. Everything in their life has gone totally sideways. Everything they thought was going to happen, everything they were planning on, gone. In fact, just a week before on Palm Sunday, which we we honor last week, Palm Sunday, right? What happens? Jesus is walking in on a colt and the like. people are lining the streets of Jerusalem, waving palm branches, which are sort of a national symbol. It's like waving American flags out front, right? They're ushering in the new king. And over the course of a week, we go from new candidate, right, for king, the person everybody's worshiping and praising and excited about and rallying behind, right? It's like a, a, imagine like Obama era, right, when everybody was rising up and they were saying, this is it, this is how it's going to happen, right? And then suddenly everything goes sideways. And over the course of that week, More and more they begin to realize until on Friday it hits them, this is not going to end well. This is a disaster. And they're unbelievable before their eyes. Who they had lauded as king, right? Jesus is put up as a criminal and killed. This is not praiseworthy for them. This is not wonderful for them. This is horrifying. This, this felt like the end of a dream, right? Everything they wanted ruined. And here, and so here we come on Sunday morning. What had happened, what had happened is that, what, why, do, why do they come on Sunday morning? Meg and I were talking about this. Why on earth is Mary waiting until Sunday morning? Jesus was put in the tomb Friday night. So a little backstory here. Um, after Jesus had been crucified and they had pulled him down, A few people, a few wealthy patrons and disciples and followers, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, had bought bought a tomb. And they had taken Jesus there right up to the cusp of sundown. And in the Jewish tradition, that, that sundown moment, if they dared take Christ, even as a dead criminal, and try to do anything with him, they would have been apprehended on the Sabbath, right? They would have been told, you must stop. And so they are hurrying Jesus to the tomb, putting the spices that you would normally put on somebody to sort of embalm them and get them ready for that time, for that that situation. And they're rushing and they can't get it done. Night falls and they have to go. They roll, the tomb is rolled, the stone is rolled, the Roman soldiers are there. And they spend all of Saturday in this thin space where they literally can't do anything, right? In one level, it's rest. In another level, it's probably utter agony. For Mary, she's probably bawling, right? Mary is, we we start this story with the character Mary Magdalene. 
a few a few housekeeping things with Mary Magdalene. It is so common to think Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. I think that's a very common assumption about Mary Magdalene. There's nothing biblical that supports that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. This this is a woman who was demon possessed in Luke eight, had been freed from that. She's a wealthy woman, a woman who had resources that supported Jesus's work and his ministry, and she was one of his closest disciples. And so, like John and Peter, who we find in the beginning of this chapter, Mary is one of the closest, the most loving, and probably one of the most loved. And she walks up to the tomb at the moment of sunbreak, right? She is probably waiting in the wings until the sun has just peaked just enough that she can say, okay, the Sabbath is over where I can't do any work, right? And now she rushes as fast as she can. Get me to the tomb, right? I need to see Jesus. I need to finish. I have spices. I need to finish and do this, right? We don't see it in this account, but luckily we have four gospels that give us a more nuanced perspective of what's going on so we can understand the narrative. And here's what we see in Luke 23, verse 55. It says, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfume, but then rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. And then it goes on and says, they took the spices down to him. So this is the setting. This is the context that we begin the story. Mary comes to the tomb. Stone is rolled away. What? And the tomb's empty. And her brain initially just spins, right? She's not even putting two and two together. All she's thinking is, I have been just in agony waiting to see Jesus. And I've finally gotten to see just where his, even his dead body is. And somebody stole him. Somebody raided the tomb. I will never get to see Jesus again. And so she panics and she runs right? What we see in verse two is, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is John's very humble way of saying himself. And he says, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. She's panicking and runs. And then we get, we get a nice little humble brag from John here. He says, so Peter went out with the other disciple, just John, And as they were going toward the tomb, both of them were running together. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So that's John's cheeky way of saying, I'm faster, I'm younger. And he stooped and he looked in and he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself, says the ESV version. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. And then it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So it's interesting here. We have disciples and Mary who have thought that things would go a certain way. They've gone totally sideways. And here they are bereft and they encounter a situation they never would have imagined right? Unbelievable in every dimension. Unbelievable that Jesus died, right? Unbelievable that he was killed like a criminal. Unbelievable that the tomb, he's been stolen, Mary thinks. And for John, utterly unbelievable because he sits down and he realizes something doesn't add up here. John knew Jesus so well. 
in the, in the account of John, we see that other disciples would ask John to talk to Jesus about sensitive things. John was like his closest guy. He could ask him anything. John knew Jesus. He knew all of his preferences. He knew what he loved. Something about the way that that was done, the way that the cloth was folded, the way that things laid down, John saw it and he said, no. He said, I know Jesus. And that is not a raider who stole him. They would have, first of all, they would have taken the clothes. Second of all, those clothes are, are, those clothes are folded neatly. Only Jesus would do it that way. He saw it and he believed. And up until that point, we have to believe that John and everyone else actually didn't in their heart believe that Jesus would rise. Not in their heart. They knew it in their head, but in their heart they did not know. They did not believe. They did not trust. In their deepest heart, when he was dead, when he was killed on the cross and crucified, they thought, it's all over. Wow. I can't believe it. They didn't see the orchestration, the plan, the bigger picture. And so I want to talk through a few points today as we're thinking about how do we how do we wrestle with believing the unbelievable, right? What do we do when the unbelievable happens? And what does this unbelievable story tell us if we are to believe it? The first thing it tells us is that we are asked to turn from other realities. When we believe in Jesus and his resurrection, we have to turn from other realities. We have to. The fact that we believe that Jesus has been resurrected does not fit into our current culture, our current reality. People, that's crazy talk. It's crazy that you would say somebody rose from the dead. And then to say that somebody is God, right? A man was God. That's crazy. It's totally fine to say Jesus was a nice guy. Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus taught good morals. I love Jesus' take on social justice, right? All of these things are fine things to say and won't offend anybody. But to hear that, no, I actually believe that Jesus raised from the dead, that means we turn from other realities. We live in a different reality. And then if we do that, we then have to say, if Jesus is Lord, if he is God, if he can do that, then we're asked to receive what Jesus gives us. We're asked to receive what Jesus gives us. And then here's the beautiful part of this. When we wrestle with the unbelievable, when we begin to believe this unbelievable act, we can truly live in peace and generosity. So I'm going to walk us through these characters, and I hope to get us there to wrestle with this concept of what, how are John and Mary right now, how are these two characters turning from other realities? Well, here it happens. Here it happens with John. He is saying, my reality was Jesus was crucified. He's dead. It's over. I don't know what to make of what he said. I'm still dealing with it. Was I a fool? I don't know. But somewhere deep down, no, I, I trust him. I love him. And he sees this and he goes, I got something. I'm going to hang on to this. Jesus would have done it that way, you guys. Even if I sound crazy, everyone else, I just got to say, Jesus would have done it that way. And so it says he saw and believed. And then the disciples went back to their home. All right, now cut to Mary. We get, we get a little cross cut here to Mary, and it says, after they had gone home, Mary has, has 
gone out the side door, right? Mary's probably with all the disciples. And she's, she said, now I'm going back. I'm going back to this tomb, right? Because the, where Mary left off, she was just panic-stricken, right? And then after she goes back and tells John and Peter, they sort start to add things up. But still, John is the only one who's actually believing. And Mary just can't deal with it, right? She goes back to the site, so to speak. And she stood there weeping outside the tomb, verse 11. And as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. In her mind, grave robbers had taken her guy, her teacher, her person, the, the one that made her whole, her everything. And she was angry now. She had gone from a sort of a denial to an anger. Right? She's stepping through all the stages of grief. <laughs> and she's angry. They've taken him. Right? I, I'm totally out of control. I had everything packaged up. Jesus made everything work for me. And now nothing in my life works without Jesus. And so she talks to these, these two strangers. Right? And I don't think that I don't think that when Mary was talking, they were like glowing, floating angels with wings, right? Hebrews 11 says, when we entertain strangers without knowing it, we may be entertaining angels. Mary, Mary had no idea these were angels, right? She is she's staring in the face of these two strangers who are asking this question. You say, I don't know, you tell me who took them. You seem to know a lot. You tell me who took them. You seem calm, right? Mary is frustrated. She's emotional. And she wants to figure this out. See, the story of John hinges around the resurrection, the story of all of the Gospels. Nothing in the Gospels will add up without this piece. John has built the Gospel of John like a good Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes mystery novel, right? And this chapter is where Sherlock Holmes walks in and begins to lay out every step for us of how it all happened, how the crime was completed, right? How everything was done. Or Poirot with Agatha Christie, right? He walks in and he is the mastermind. He says, no, this is the piece that you were all missing that makes it all work. Nothing adds up without this. Now, does the world suddenly and utterly change around everyone because Jesus has written, risen? No, the world seems eerily similar. And yet everything is different. Everything is different because here is a group of people who Jesus was their everything. In fact, Jesus is their everything. And without him, their world seems empty. See, the rest of the world is rejoicing when this happens, but not Jesus's people. They're different. William Barclay, who I've quoted quite a bit, commentary writer, talks about the kind of love that, that, that John and Mary must have had. And he talks about this kind of knowing, this kind of love that you have for Jesus that, that is a sign of belief. It's a sign of trust. He says, once a young artist brought a picture of Jesus to the 19th century French painter and illustrator Gustave Doré. Gustave Doré did a lot of incredible, you should look up his Bible that he illustrated, it's just incredible illustrations. And he brought, this, this young artist brought a picture of Jesus for Doré's verdict, right? This guy's like the authority on how to draw Jesus, right? Doré was slow to give it, but at last he did so in one sentence. He says, you don't love him, 
or you would paint him better. We can neither understand Jesus nor help others to understand him unless we take our hearts to him as well as our minds. What he's saying is, no, you got to really care. you got to look at the details. If you love somebody, you think of everything. Think about those of you who have, that are married and you think about your spouse. You know the ins and outs, right? Favorite colors, preferences. Do they like to wake up early or late? How do they like their coffee? Right? You, you know all of these details. And so here we have these characters who truly loved, who truly knew Jesus, not just by the book, not just by his words, not as the, not as the Pharisees or rabbis studied him, but as a friend. And so their reaction here cuts to, to our core, cuts to our core, and it says, no, these people feel the loss of Jesus. They've taken my Lord away, and they don't know where they have put him. Even dead, Jesus is still Mary's Lord. She's still her king, right? And so she just doesn't know what to do with her. She can't change her identity that quickly. But yet, instead, Mary is wrapped up in the reality of what is. And everyone, including John until that moment, everyone had disregarded the reality that Jesus had painted for them, the reality that Jesus had promised for them. So as good as they have studied Jesus, as good as they have drawn Jesus, let's say, as closely as they have loved Jesus, they have actually neglected something crucial. Jesus' promise for them. In all of the disaster, their plans of how their dream would go versus Jesus' plans of the dream actually collide. And they collide in different ways. Mary's bereft, right? She's mourning. She's crying tears. What's Peter done? Peter just straight up denied Jesus Friday night, right? Things start going really sideways for Peter. And you see what Peter actually wanted, what his dream was. Peter had a dream for glory. And so when Peter gets threatened, he denies Jesus three times, right? Their dreams have come up. Their actual dreams of what they want come up against the plan and the design of what Jesus has made. And they have to reckon with it. And what I want to say to all of us as a church today on Easter is Jesus is asking us to turn from that reality to his reality. He's saying, turn from that and turn to me. Listen what happens here. Jesus says to her, woman, oh, sorry, let me back up one sentence. The the angels, they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But even then, she didn't know it was Jesus. See, Mary had to turn. First, she had to turn from her grief. She had to turn from her despair. She had to turn to one who was going to bring her grace. And even then, she doesn't have the grace. Jesus isn't revealed to her until he chooses to do so, until it's given to her. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And it's not until he unlocks her understanding of him with the word, right? He says, Mary. There's, there's a, a million different ways he could have said that word. We all know that way that somebody would say our name that would break us down. That would show us that they really know us. That in that nuance of the inflection and the tone, they say, Alex, John, Heather. 
they say your name and you just know. They actually know what's going on with you. They actually get it. Jesus says, you must turn from my reality, and then Mary melts. See, in her grief, she's so stricken by disaster, by failure, by loss, that she can see no good in it, no hope, no future, and she has gone totally inward. And she has actually gone so inward that, like Peter, she has begun to turn away from Jesus himself, and it takes turning back, even in her tears, just to listen, to be willing, to be searching for Jesus to claim her back. And so she says, this happens, and she realizes, she says, teacher. And then she goes and she proclaims, Jesus says, don't cling to me. Don't keep me for yourself. Share that I am here. You believe too, Mary, and go and share it. And so then we get to the second character of our story, right? Jesus, Jesus, Mary runs off in a very different way than she ran off at the beginning. In the beginning, she's running off in a panic-stricken, denial, anger, fear. All of the emotions are going on. No, when she runs back to the disciples this time, she has utter resolve. It's all different than I thought it would be. Yes, it all went sideways. But guys, Jesus planned it this way because he's still here. He hasn't left us. And so she comes to the disciples. We pass the baton to the next character in the story, right? This is the group of disciples. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Hold on, you guys, one second. My worst fear happened. My kids have opened their door, and I can hear all their sound. So just one second. All right. So hoping I wouldn't have to do that. But the door is closed now. Um, <clears throat> so he's come to the disciples, and they're in fear. They're hiding. They're cowering. So their, their vision of the world had also gone sideways. They had also lost it, right? And they have said, "What? how do they react? They don't react necessarily in grief and mourning, at least in this instant. They're reacting in fear. They're saying, we, we have... We've been pretty public about this, actually. People know our names. People know who we are. We're a pretty sizable group. And we're afraid that the Jewish authorities are going to start picking us off one by one the same way they picked Jesus off, right? The same way they pointed finger at him and made him the, the criminal. We're worried that the same thing is going to happen to us. So they've also turned right, from Jesus and his, his truth and his reality and his promise and the assurance that he's given to them. Leading up to this in John, Jesus has these long discourses about what's going to happen. And so he's, he's, he's said what's going to happen and they have given up on it because what they saw with their own eyes didn't match the true reality. On Easter Sunday, we have to grapple with something that somebody will say, yeah, you believe in Jesus risen from the grave, but prove it, right? That's not happening to anybody else. How does that happen? So you're, you're wrestling with something that doesn't match, it doesn't seem to match up with your current reality. And yet John says in this gospel, this is, this is what I gave you. And this is the proof. This is the reason. 
And Jesus comes to them and he, just like Mary, he comes with grace and he shows himself. He does things he doesn't need to do. He walks in, he says, peace be with you. And he showed his hands and he shows his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So in that moment, in that proof to them that they would believe the unbelievable, they're so glad. They're so overwhelmed. And then he begins to instruct them and he sits down with them, his people in his room. And you can just imagine this. It says, it sounds kind of weird in the translation. It says he said that he breathed on them. I think today we're like, that, that is a really nerve wracking thing to hear. Somebody breathing on you, especially right now, right? We're like fear of droplets, fear of germs, right? He breathed on them. But imagine this. Imagine Jesus coming into this room. He's walked in and he goes like this. <sighs> right? He's with his people too. Jesus is back with his people as well. And he's, he's at peace with them. And suddenly they're at peace with him. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is exhaled, it's given. Previously, the Spirit had appeared to be taken away. The breath had been taken away, right? When we go to the cross in John 19 or in Mark 15, right? In John 19, it says, when he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Or in Mark 15, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. To everyone around, it had appeared that Jesus' breath had been taken from him. That Jesus had been defeated. That he had been conquered. That that breath had been pulled out of him by the Pharisees, by the Romans, by all of those who hated him. But all along, John has told us in this narrative, it was never taken from Jesus. Nothing was ever taken from Jesus. Jesus has always given. In his death, he gave his spirit, his last breath. He gave it out. He knew this was the plan. He was the ultimate one trusting in the Father. And he gave the breath. And here again, he gives it to his disciples. So just as Jesus received what was given, even to the point of the cross, even to the point of dying for it, once we turn to the new reality, it doesn't end there. We don't get to just walk away from that and feel good having that, that head knowledge that I'm doing the right thing, right? We receive what Jesus gives us. Receive my spirit, he says. Gosh, it's hard to receive what Jesus gives us, even in this time even yesterday, even in this week, right? To walk around and to say, Jesus, I receive what you have given me. How do we say that? How do we properly say that? We have to believe, first of all, that Jesus has given certain things to us that we are thankful for, but not everything around us are things we're necessarily thankful that are happening, right? Jesus is not asking us to be totally thankful that there is a pandemic killing people right now. He's not saying that's a good thing. He's saying in that there is a way for you 
to be grateful. See, Jesus all along had given this perspective and he had said, there's a reason, there's a way, there's a key. There's the thing that's being revealed in this mystery novel right now that's the key to your even your gratitude in your grief. I'm going to read a little bit. So all of the disciples would have heard this, and yet they still didn't believe. I'm going to read from John 16, where Jesus talks in depth about what's going to happen to them, about the way he will be taken from them. He says in verse 16, John 16, verse 16, he says, In a little while... So this is before the triumphal entry. This is before he's walked in, before Hosanna with the palm branches, before the final Holy Week. He tells me, he says, he says, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this point, the disciples are like, okay. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while, you will see me no more? They're confused. And they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he was saying. Moving on to verse 20, he says, Very well, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. So he's promising to them in that moment, there is a key here. There's something you don't see, but once you have it, it's all going to make sense. Believe me. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born in the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. And then Jesus goes on in verse 31, he says, Do you now believe a time is coming, and in fact has come, where you will be scattered, each to your own homes? Very relevant right now. And you will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. David Stenorast is a, is a Benedictine monk. He's like 97. He's been through a lot. He was on the NPR podcast on being. I don't know if any of you guys listen to that. There's a lot of stuff on there. But occasionally they will have a Christian on there or somebody who I really respect. And he said something really interesting here. He said, we are not grateful for all things, as I was saying, but we can always be grateful. Any clues to why? Thinking about what Jesus just talked about in John 16. Not all things are gifts, but we can all be grateful. Even right now, amidst suffering, we can all be grateful. Why? Because Jesus is risen. It's the Easter message. Because this is all according to plan. A God, he is totally and utterly in control. If he could be in control in that plan going as sideways as it felt like it was going. And come out and say, guys, I told you this all along that it was going to be like this. And here, I have the grace to tenderly come to you and just gently remind you. I'm risen. You have my spirit. Your life, your whole life is a gift. In fact, the very act of breathing out is a life-giving act, right? Genesis 2-7 tells us that, that when Jesus had formed man, 
the first act of life-giving is him breathing, exhaling, being with him. And I could imagine that breath being the same way. I get to be with my creation. Just a, a sense of dwelling. We talked a few weeks ago, Psalm 27, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Jesus is satisfied to dwell with you. He wants to be with you. And he has given two incredible things by his risen self, by the resurrection. Easter Sunday is about Jesus being Lord over death. But it is also about two extremely crucial things. It is not just that we won't die anymore. It's that we're made clean. That his breathing out is his forgiveness of sins and his giving of the Holy Spirit in one fell swoop. It's like, it's like water. It's like hydrogen and oxygen. You cannot get the Holy Spirit. You do not have the Holy Spirit in you without also being forgiven for your sins. You cannot be forgiven for your sins without having the Holy Spirit be in you. So the gift of your life is the presence of Jesus. If you say, I cannot be grateful for all things, but I can always be grateful, what are you saying? I am grateful, God, that your presence is here today in what I am dealing with, what I am afraid of, what I am fearful of, what I am anxious about, what I am in a room with other disciples as they are here fretting. These disciples are in a room freaking out. They're fretting. They're planning. They're trying to figure out their next move, right? Even in a group, just fretting, anxious mess, Jesus is going to come in his grace and remind us what we can be grateful for. We can be grateful that he has risen, that he has forgiven our sins, and that he has given us the Holy Spirit. But get this, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So there is an active part we turn from our reality, as Mary and John turn, we turn from our reality. We see and understand the reality. We believe and trust in it. And part and parcel of that, it comes just with it, in that trust, is the Holy Spirit being given to us. And our receiving is our believing. Believe that you are forgiven for your sins. This is, this is crucial. Do you wake up? If you believe in the reality of the resurrection, if you believe in the reality of God's Holy Spirit being given to you, if you believe in the forgiveness of your sins, you will see your gift, your life as a gift and not as a test. A gift and not as a test. You will not wake up in the morning trying to be more moral to get into heaven. You will not wake up afraid of failing and punishment from other people. You will not feel that you are lacking in anything. Because you will have everything. What a challenge. In, in the Bible, there are, there, are, there are because statements, right? This whole chapter is a because statement, and then there's a we statement after the because. Here's the because statement. Because we believe in the unbelievable reality of the resurrection, we see that our sin is forgiven and that the Spirit is given to us. We see our life as a gift and not a test. It's, it's a reality. Now, you may live struggling and fighting with that, but you're asked to simply receive it and fall into it. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve the gift. 
So stop trying to earn it. Instead, receive it and live out of it. And that gets us to where we were heading. That then, once we have turned, once we have received, then we live in peace and generosity. And that gets us to Thomas, famous doubting Thomas, right? Practically everybody's heard the phrase, doubting Thomas. You're a doubting Thomas, right? I think it's a little unfair. It's a little unfair to Thomas to to pigeonhole him into this space of a doubting Thomas. Like he never believed anything. Like like he's always just been hard to convince. He's always been a smart aleck. He's always been cynical. No, Thomas was utterly devoted to Jesus. In, In John 11, he says, they're going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is deathly sick. He's a friend of that community. And they say, they, they, they get word that he is going to die, right? And they have to go back to a place where they're all going to be under threat. And it's Thomas. This is the only other mention of Thomas in the New Testament. It's Thomas that says, sorry, in the book of John, and Thomas says, let us go and die with Jesus. This guy's devoted. But here's what happens. Thomas was so devoted and so dedicated, like Mary, like John, to the dream that he had, that here's how Thomas reacts to the epic disaster of Jesus' crucifixion. He goes off on his own. He holds up. He gets super depressed. He loses all hope. He's hurting, and he turns to hardness. Raise your hand if you can relate to Thomas, right? He, he, he goes off and he just says, things are tough. Things are, in fact, no, things aren't tough. Things are downright horrible. My life's hell. I'm going to go suffer alone. I'm going to feel sorry for myself. I'm going to think of all the ways I'm so hurt and everyone else has let me down. And I'm going to grow hard and calloused even to Jesus, Even Jesus couldn't pull my life out of the muck. And now I'm going to get hard about it. See, you don't doubt unless you've become a little bit, you're starting to get a little bit hard. He's wrestling. This is not a man without faith. This is a man that is wrestling with faith. And he is growing hard. Why is he growing hard? Barclay writes this. He says, Thomas made one mistake. He withdrew from Christian fellowship. He sought loneliness rather than togetherness. And because he was not there with his fellow Christians, he missed the first coming of Jesus, the first appearance back to the disciples. He missed it. Off feeling sorry for himself, off feeling, off off thinking about all the ways he doesn't have what he ought to have. And Barclay says, we miss a great deal when we separate ourselves from the Christian fellowship and try to be alone. Things can happen to us within the fellowship of Christ's church, which will not happen when we are alone. When sorrow comes and sadness envelops us, we often tend to shut ourselves up and refuse to meet with people. And that is the very time when, in spite of our sorrow, we should seek the fellowship of Christ's people. For it is there that we are the likeliest of all to meet him face to face. Gut punch. Gut punch. Thomas doesn't want to get hurt again. We're all like Thomas, right? He just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. But he's still trying to figure it out because it doesn't all add up. Without Jesus resurrected, none of the rest of Jesus makes an ounce of sense. And Thomas is a thinker. 
Thomas is an intellectual. Thomas is tackling this. He's logical. He's saying, yeah, it does all add up, but now Jesus is dead. And so what happens? Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of hit mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I need Jesus to come to me somehow and show me that he's there right now. And so it says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Again, although the doors were locked, guys, Jesus breaks and enters, if there's anything you can get from this story. Jesus is breaking and entering, right? He came in, and he stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. What does that mean? Literally, peace be with you means may all good things come to you. May all good things come to you. Jesus has given the best things. How do I get to peace and generosity from all of this and all of this anguish with Thomas? Because Jesus comes in and he says, peace be with you. The one who is Lord over death, the man who is God, who is in control of the most minute detail of this entire story says, all good things will come to you. How can that be? How can that be? Thomas has to wrestle with that. And then he puts two and two together. He sees it all add up and he says, you are the Lord, my Lord and my God. Have you believed? And then Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who, not, who do not yet believe. So I want to be really clear before we step on the next point. I want to be really clear. Doubt is welcome in faith. Doubt is welcome. Alfred Lord Tennyson, who's a 19th century poet, wrote, there, are, there lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. What he's saying by that, he's, he's saying by creeds, he means these things that we know how to recite, the prayers we know how to say, the memory verses we know how to say, the times we know to show up at church just to be there, the ways that we know to check the boxes. He says, there's not faith in that. There can be a manifestation of that where there is no faith. He says there can be more faith in honest doubt than that, in wrestling, wrestling in the direction of Jesus, turning from the reality and saying, Jesus, show me how. I am full of doubt. Put me around the believers. You notice Thomas cannot yet believe until the, the believers have come around him and said, we have seen the Lord. And then Jesus comes to him after that. After the believers have said, we have seen the Lord to him. After they've come around and they have sought to convince them to pull him out of his delusion. Of his delusion that seems like plain sight reality. They've pulled him out. They've said, there is a key here. You delude yourself to trust only what you see in the world around you. You must trust in Jesus. He's come to us. And then, of course, what does John write? He says, I've written this all so you can believe. So don't expect Jesus to walk in and break and enter in your house the same way he has here in the flesh where you can touch the nails in his hands and in his side because this is it. He's doing it right now in this passage for you. He's breaking and entering in your door in the company of other Christians. That's how it's happening. And so how that brings us peace. You might say, I don't have peace yet. I just feel this is super intense. This is going to bring you peace because there's truth here. 
There's a truth to this that is testified by millions of people that say, no, this is true. I've seen it. I've experienced it. Trust me. You can have peace and then generosity. And I'll come to a close here. I want us to think about generosity. How do I get generosity out of this? How do these characters in the story connect to each other? There is what I've called a sending rhythm going on in this, in this chapter. One to the next is being sent by Jesus to deliver the risen Christ to the next character in the story. I called it passing a baton, right? There's a sending rhythm. If you read this deeper, you can see in verse 7, verse 7, there's a sending. Where the disciples see and believe, and he, he knows, and he goes back. John sees and believes. And then you can see it again in verse 21. Sorry, also in verse 17, where he says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, He's sending Mary. And then verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then again to Thomas, this one's a little more veiled, right? He says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. He's actually sending Thomas. Because then he caps off the whole book and says, This is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that you, the whole, the whole perspective the whole audience for this book, this has been written all in the third person, right? Meaning that it's talking about the characters and their names. There's no, there's no I here. John even talks about himself in the third person. He says the other disciple. And now John writes with his pen, you. I'm sending you. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Guys, the resurrection Easter Sunday asks us to turn from our reality. It asks these characters, it asks us to receive, to actively receive, to live practicing peace. There's a willful acceptance, a practice to say, I am I'm willing to accept that my life is gift is a gift. I am going to say it. I'm going to accept that all good things are coming to me because Jesus tells me so, not because it all seems that way on the outside, but because Jesus is the key that makes it all work. I'm going to accept the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to accept his spirit indwelling with me. And then I'm going to be resting in an active peace. And I know that I am sent. So now I have to ask myself, what do I do about it? I believe that there is not a true feeling of peace. There is not a true, a true nature of peace being with us without us being in proclamation. Peace and proclamation go together. That there is a sense that in the sharing, a Christian is one who says, I have seen the Lord. And in that is our greatest peace. Because I'll tell you right now, as one who has done this in my life, when we pretend not to be a Christian... There is no inner peace in that. To be a Christian requires a total identity, a total turn to a new reality that brings absolute peace and utter generosity. Pray with me.
God, I pray that you've convicted our hearts today, God. I pray also that you've that you've actually given us joy. Yes, there are things here that we see about ourselves. You've illuminated things that need changing. Thank you, God. But thank you that we are not trying to live up to you. Thank you that we're not going to make these changes so that we can get into heaven or get the prize or have our dream, God. Thank you that you've laid out the dream so clearly. You've laid out the design. You've said how it ends. And God, you've given us one life to live. God, I pray that we can live it in such a way that we live in a true reality, that we walk out today and we see with the key that you have given to us and that our life would be different from that, God, that we would have true inner peace, that we could be truly grateful, God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.